Um, today's scripture is from Luke 23:50. Luke 23:50. When you are there, please stand for the reading of reading of God's word. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action, and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked him for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in, linen, in, a, in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone, where no one had ever yet been laid. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee uh, followed and saw the tomb and saw his body was laid, saw how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath day, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed by this, behold, Two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you, while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of, the, of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told the, all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna, the, and the mother of, uh, and Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. This is the word of the Lord. Well, as we are now, uh, after our short study on Luke 23, the crucifixion of Jesus, it is natural for us to try to take the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus all in one go, um, because these themes are, as I've been saying for the last couple of weeks, they're all united, and it's a little bit artificial to separate them out or tease them out from one another. And so uh, while these sections, the burial of Jesus and his resurrection, happen in distinct uh, days, they happen days apart, it is, it is fitting for us to take them together because of the fact that they're, uh, they're linked, they're inextricably linked by the fact that Christ in his burial is anticipated to rise by his own words. If you want to, let me uh, kind of start with my conclusion first, not something I'm going to normally do. Let me start with my conclusion and then I'll try to build the case for that conclusion uh, backwards, if you will. Okay. The conclusion of where we're, we're going to get to at the end of this sermon is that the resurrection is the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. The resurrection is that thing. It's not moral instruction that makes Christianity unique. It's not an attempt to live rightly in the eyes of one another, to do kind to one's neighbor. That's not what makes Christianity unique. It's not even claiming to follow Jesus that makes Christianity unique. Because many people claim to follow Jesus 
But if you press a little bit further, what you get defined on the other end of Jesus is a little bit strange or different from what others would describe. So I want to try to pin the point here that the resurrection, the bodily resurrection, is the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. And this all, the resurrection, all takes place on the first day of the week. And that's significant. So that's where I'm going. So let me start now back here in the world of a little bit more abstract thinking, and we'll kind of narrow in to that point. So out in the world of abstract thinking, uh, the timing of these events is actually pretty significant. So Jesus is crucified and buried on the day going into the Sabbath day. So you remember in the Old Testament, when is the Sabbath day? Sabbath day is the seventh day of the week. Because in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh, he rested. So the Sabbath day, Israel models that rest because they're commanded by God to follow in his example. And as an act of obedience, they observe the Sabbath. And you'll notice the time markers uh, because at the end of verse 56, you'll see that the women are preparing all these things because they are to rest on the Sabbath according to the commandment. That's a pretty significant timing. So we're on the sixth day of the week as it currently stands, when Jesus is being crucified and being buried. Sabbath day happens, seventh day of the week. And then on the first day of the week, or we might say the eighth day, however you want to count it, first day of the week, Christ resurrects from the grave, the tomb is empty, and now you have something unique happening. In the old creation, when God first made the heavens and the earth, on the first day he makes heaven and earth. And the new creation, on the first day, the eighth day, according to this counting, we have Christ, the new creation, the new heavens, new earth, all that is anticipated in the new creation coming to life. It's a significant timing. So as in the first day of first creation, God makes the heavens and the earth, so too on the first day of new creation, we have Christ, the new man, the new mankind, resurrected from the tomb. And that's not an arbitrary connection. Because there's one other dating that I mentioned there, the sixth day, which is when he's crucified. Who else is made on the sixth day in first creation? It was Adam and Eve. Mankind is made on the sixth day. And in their creation and in their fall, God says, from dust you were made and to dust you shall return. That's death as a result of sin. So here we have uh, Jesus, the new Adam, the new humanity dying in place of the old Adam and the old humanity and the old faithful to put to death the curse of sin. He's crucified on the sixth day. I don't think it's an arbitrary thing that's happening, not just to resurrect on the first day, but also to show that he is both the new Adam and the one who puts the sin to death that Adam merited for all the human race. I think Paul makes this clear in Romans when he says there's two humanities. You either have Adam as your head or Christ as your head. And there is no in-between. And so you either can have the old creation man, creation under the curse, or you can have the new creation man, creation freed from the curse, not because the curse has been waved away, but because the curse has been put to death in Christ's death. I mentioned that was going to be abstract. Okay? Let me zoom in a little bit more concretely here. The resurrection is not just something that happens on these certain days. 
the seventh day or, or sorry, the first day or the sixth day. Those days are important. But there's something else that the text, at least that Luke is specifically driving home, and he has been driving home since the beginning of his gospel. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, Luke has this introductory prelude to his gospel where he says, it seemed fitting for me to write this gospel because I have observed all these things closely from the beginning. I have taken careful account of all the things that have happened, so here I write my gospel to you, Theophilus. And so Luke has been very detail-oriented this entire time. And as, as you might be tired of at this point, we've been going back to some of those details as they have their payouts later on in the gospel. One of these payouts is, uh, is his claim to have surveyed the witnesses in chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 of his intro. I just want you to note the number of witnesses Luke has brought to bear on both the crucifixion, trial, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus. So just look first with me at the witnesses we see in the text right here. So in verse 50, there's a man named Joseph. He's a witness. We can ask the question, is he a credible witness? What makes him a credible witness? He's a man named Joseph, and he's a member of the council. That council that had just put Jesus to death, had pleaded before Pilate to not let him go innocent and to crucify him. Okay, so we're introduced to this man, but this man is different. He's considered good and righteous. That's language Luke uses elsewhere of Zechariah and Elizabeth in chapter 1. And this man, Joseph, did not consent to their purpose and deed. He was rather looking for the kingdom of God. So we have a witness, someone who's on the council, who essentially has everything to lose by identifying with Jesus. And Jesus is now dead. So what does he have to gain in outing himself now? And yet, verse 52, he goes to Pilate and asks him for the body of Jesus. He takes this body, wraps it in a linen shroud, lays it in a tomb. He's outing himself. But we have a witness, a credible witness, a reputable witness to the, res to the crucifixion of Jesus and the fact that he really was dead. We've had other witnesses that Luke has shown to us. We have, in chapter 22, the chief priests and the scribes who all come together to concoct this trial against Jesus. They're all witnesses all the way through that trial, from initial uh, prosecution all the way to final execution. They are witnesses to the fact that Jesus was dead. And don't you think it would have been strange for them to say, well, Pilate told us he'd kill him, so we'll, we'll kind of see him off now. They wanted Jesus dead. They were going to make sure that he was, in fact, dead. We have eyewitnesses to the crucifixion, the death of Jesus. We have other witnesses. For example, we have Pilate himself, who is a witness to Jesus having been crucified. This is what the creed says when it says we believe in Jesus Christ, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. The historical witness, crucified, died, and was buried. And here in this text, we also have women, once again, We've had women on the way to his crucifixion, and we hear in verse 55, there are women coming with him from Galilee who followed after and watched the tomb and how his body was laid. So they're not just witnesses to his death, also they're witnesses to the very tomb in which he was laid. Luke's point is pretty obvious. Lest anyone deny that Jesus was dead, or lest anyone deny that he was buried, here are my sources for saying these things. 
you also have the criminals on Jesus's side who are witnesses to not only his trial, but also his death, him breathing out his last. And then you have another witness, the centurion, who we looked at last week, who's a witness also to the death of Jesus. And uh, as you'll see in chapter 24, verse 18 of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is traveling on the road with his disciples, and they, they don't quite understand who it is yet. But in, in ask, Jesus is asking questions about why are they so sad, and they say, are you the only person in all of Judea who does not know what has happened in these last days? So Luke is basically saying, well, I have all these specific witnesses, but I have these disciples who say everyone knew. This was the news in Judea. Everyone is a witness to the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. All of his disciples, the crowd, those who are against him, the Roman officials, Roman soldiers, everyone's a witness. I'm getting at the point that the, the crucifixion and burial of Jesus were real, tangible events in history. They have a reality to them. And this is vital. This is the, the basis, the structure from which the Christian faith is, is built. The Christian faith is not a, a, a crucified Savior who's crucified in spirit and resurrected in spirit. He's a real historical man, and he's a real Messiah who was crucified in actuality, in a point in time in history. There's a reality to the resurrection, which is important. That's what Luke gets at. That's what the Apostles' Creed says. Even uh, in 1 John, uh, John writing well after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, he says, let me start here. Uh, we were all eyewitnesses to his embodied witness to us. We were all witnesses to it. We saw him. We touched him. We were witnesses to the incarnation of Jesus. Jesus is uh, real. That's the point. That's what I'm saying. When I'm, uh, the conclusion I'm getting to is that the, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is the thing that makes Christianity Christianity. And here we have real witnesses to that event historically. Now, why am I believing that point? What's significant about that? The point of all that is that, let's say, I don't know, 600 years later, someone comes along and says, actually, I don't agree with any of this Christian historical witness to the resurrection. Here's what actually happened. Jesus was never di died. He was never crucified. It only appeared like that. He was subbed out. Someone else died in his place. Perhaps Judas. People have said that. It's what Muslim scholars would hold about Jesus. But the question is, why would you trust someone writing 600 years after the events have transpired as opposed to uh, an innumerable amount of eyewitnesses who have been compiled together in these gospel accounts, writing a couple of decades after these events have happened. The reality of the resurrection is key for Christianity. It's key to your faith. It's key to my faith. To do away with the uh, reality of his burial is to do away with the reality of his resurrection. And you have eyewitnesses to the burial. You have eyewitnesses to the empty tomb. Those same women go on the first day of the week to the tomb. That's in verse 2. They found the stone which is rolled away. Verse 3 of chapter 24. When they went in to the tomb, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Here we have two women, witnesses to the fact that the tomb is empty. And we have angels, two of them, who stand in shining apparel. And in verse 5, or sorry, uh, verse 5, they say, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but he has been raised. He is risen. So you have witnesses. You have angelic witnesses. You have human witnesses to the empty tomb. And here we have angelic witnesses also to the resurrection. 
But not only that, you have other disciples as well. In fact, the women go and tell the 11 remaining disciples. And what happens? Peter also serves as a witness. Verse 12, Peter ran to the tomb and stretching out, looking in, he saw the linen clothes by themselves and he went home amazed at what had happened. Peter hasn't quite sorted it all out just yet, but the point is he's a witness to these things. He is bearing testimony to the reality of these things as they've happened in history. That's a historical foundation. Okay, then there is the, what, what I might call the practicality. So I've, I've kind of laid out the super abstract new creation stuff, the reality of the eyewitnesses to this resurrection, and now I want to get to the, the practical stuff. What does this resurrection have to do with you and I thousands of years later? What does that have to do with baptism? What, is, what does it got to do with all these things? Well, the resurrection practically is, we would say, the engine of the Christian walk, the Christian faith. If, uh, if you remember, I don't know when you would have learned it, maybe seventh, eighth grade biology class, maybe freshman year, I don't want to put anyone to shame. <laughs> if I was to ask you, what is the powerhouse of the cell? What would you say? Mitochondria. Everyone knows this. Whether or not you knew that you knew that, or whether or not you didn't actually know that, it's okay, everyone else answered for you. The mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. What, is, what does the mitochondria do? It produces all of the energy or a vast majority of the energy needed for the cell to function. There's all this other structure and and enzymes and all these other things in a single cell that, that it requires to function. There's DNA, all these things, but it needs energy to go. Well, the resurrection, in some sense, uh, to the Christian church and to the Christian faith and to the Christian witness is that powerhouse. It's a thing that makes everything else go. It's what makes preaching in the book of Acts go. It's what converts people to the faith. It's what takes the disciples and turns them from cowards into powerful witnesses to the truth of the Christian faith. It is, uh, it is the power, the engine, the motivation, we would say the, uh, it, and Paul even says, the power of the gospel is Christ Jesus resurrected. It's the thing of which he is unashamed. So the resurrection is very much practical, Christian to you, for your own boldness in faith. If you just look at how the apostles respond, if you look at how those who hear the apostles preaching respond, you'll recognize there's a certain boldness associated with the reality of the resurrection. We have a savior who is not dead and living on in memory, but he is resurrected and living at the right hand of God the Father from which he rules the whole world. And so we do his bidding because we serve the God of all creation. It's a powerful position. It's a powerful uh, message. And it is, it is power within itself. If you've ever wondered, uh, why Christians listen to preaching week after week, why Christians like sermons, why, why Christians constantly go back to this book that's thousands of years old written in different languages. Why do we, why do, we do that kind of stuff? It's because there's power behind it. Where does the power come from? It's from the resurrected Christ who through his spirit causes his word to be alive to his people. It causes the preaching of his word to be alive, to convict of sin, to encourage us, to comfort us, to preach to us the very messages that we need to hear. Not just that we are sinners, but for those of us who are in Christ, we are also redeemed, bought with his blood. We have an identity that is now new and different from the world. The world tries to sell that message. You can go on uh, YouTube, find motivational videos. They'll tell you, you what you need to do is believe that you are different and you will be different. 
discipline yourself to be different, and one day, 10 years from now, you will end up a different person. There's no real power behind that, though. It's an attractive idea. It's an interesting idea. It, it, it works to a certain extent, but it doesn't have the same kind of power as saying, no, 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 you are different because of what God has done on your behalf, that you rest in his work. So the resurrection is very much practical for Christians. It's practical in other ways, too, not just to empower us with courage and confidence. It's also practical in the sense that it helps us with our war against sin and our old flesh. Paul says it this way. He says, the life that I now live, I live in the power of Christ. That is right after he has finished saying, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I have been crucified with Christ. So that sin has no more power over Paul. Sin has no more power over you either, Christian. And, and that's not just sin in the, in the sense that you think of, oh, I know what sins I can commit on a regular basis. That's all aspects of our human fallenness that are bound up and dealt with in Christ's finished work. Our own self-doubt, our own identity struggles, our own weakness, all the shame associated with sin that is heaped upon us as well. All of that, by the power of Christ, is dealt with in the resurrection. The resurrection is very much practical. And I would say that to consciously be aware of how the resurrection affects your struggle against sin, your struggle against temptation, your struggle over identity, you, you ought to, as a Christian, be consciously aware of how the resurrection alters those realities. Sometimes Christians can think about the resurrection as something that operates in the background, and it helps us to some extent, but we're always thinking about it after the fact, after we've struggled with sin, after we've faced temptation, after we've struggled with doubt, after we've thought, will I ever be rid of this struggle? The resurrection should be something that it operates in the foreground, uh, that combats the sin as it comes in, combats the temptation as it arrives, combats those identity mixes as they come into our minds. The resurrection is an active warrior against those things. It works in the front of our minds. So there's these pieces of practicality. There's maybe one more thing which is very practical, I would say, about this Christian resurrection, this God whom we serve, is that the resurrection, for all that it does in dealing with sin, for all that it does in, it is antici in anticipating new creation, for all that it does in all these different ways, uh, none of those things would, would matter or differentiate Christianity from, let's say, a message of self-help if it were not what I'm going to rely on, what I said earlier, the historical variability or the, the historical reliability of these things. We can verify by the earliest witnesses that the resurrection is true, that it did happen. And that adds a power to it very practically because when you, when you anchor, where you build a faith or a, a, a belief system on a foundation that's wobbly or that's based on wishful thinking or hopeful thinking, it's only a matter of time bef before that hope or that wishful thinking or that aspiration begins to crack down. You've all experienced this. You've all done news resolutions before. You've all had this aspiration towards something better and, it's bi and, you're, and you motivate yourself off of kind of a shabby foundation. It's only a matter of time before things like that fall apart. Well, because it's built on hopes and dreams and as our culture says, prayers, they don't really mean what Christians mean when we say prayers in that way. But we'd say, oh, it, we, we build this on hopes and dreams and prayers, and we just hope that it goes. 
Well, the resurrection is practical in that your faith, your walk against sin, your walk into new life, your bearing of fruit, the new man that is alive inside of you, Christian, is not held together by hopes and prayers and, and wishful thinking. It's held together by the very power of a God who has moved historically in time and space to save his people from their sins. So that when you struggle with sin, you don't think, well, I hope that I will be better one day, so I'll resist this temptation. You think, Christ Jesus died for me, a sinner. How can I go on in my sin? Christ Jesus died for this very purpose that I would live now in his resurrection power. It's fact to identity to action. It's not hope to prayer to maybe behavior change. Those are different systems for altering who we are and how we live. So the resurrection is intensely practical for all of those reasons. Now, if I can circle back just a little bit, some of you might be thinking, well, that all could be true if the resurrection itself could be proven beyond a shadow of a doubt. But don't you know, Christians, there's many books, many, many people who have degrees well beyond your own who have said the resurrection is wishful thinking. It's historical fiction. It can't be proven. Many atheists would say, uh, Bar Erdman, leading New Testament scholar, would, would say something like that. The resurrection is something that happens uh, as kind of a delusion of the disciples. But let me take those professionals and put them up against another professional, well-studied in this area, N.T. Wright. He speaks about the resurrection very helpfully, and he says that actually, if you were to look very closely at the evidence for Jesus, his claims to being a Messiah, his claims even to bringing in the kingdom of God, you can find about 10 or 12 different messianic movements that happen in about a 150-year span before and after the time of Christ, the last of those happening in the culmination of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. You can find many of these movements, about a dozen or so. What happens in each of those instances is the Messiah figure, the leader of these different groups, ends in a, a bloody death by the hands of the Romans, in almost every case. And then the followers of that movement have a choice. They can either abandon their hopes of messianic redemption, or they have to go and find a new Messiah. They got the wrong one, now they gotta go find another Messiah to go lead the next charge. That happens in all the other cases, except for the disciples. And interestingly, the disciples don't abandon their movement even though, uh, as, as if you're reading along chronologically in Luke, you're like, they have abandoned the movement. Just wait, we'll get there. The, what's interesting is they don't abandon their movement. They don't go find another Messiah. No, they actually, after his crucifixion, go on with this message saying he was the Messiah, he is resurrected, and he currently lives, and you should believe in him because he's the Lord of all creation. It's the only movement that does that. It's the only one of those messianic movements that culminates in this uh, in this kind of strange historical anomaly, and now we have to explain it. How, how can we account for that? Is it just that these ones had a different plan for success, like a different entrepreneurial business to grow their model? Or is it possible that all of what they said about Jesus is in fact true, was in fact real? So that when Joseph of Arimathea goes to bury Jesus, he's not just going to bury someone who uh, he looked up to and admired, but he's going to pay honor to his Lord who has saved him from his sins. It's historical, 
And what it, what it explains really well is the birth of the New Testament church. In fact, if you, one of the early witnesses to the church in, in the first couple hundred years, and even a witness that goes on today, is the, what's called the confessional apologetic. I've talked about this a number of times at various points. The idea is that you don't reason against people uh, who doubt Christianity from uh, arguments from reason or logic or evidence or any of these other kinds of apologetic methods. The confessional apologetic says, we'll look at the life of the church lived out in the power of God as a witness to the fact that Jesus is in fact raised from the dead. It's how, uh, how St. Athanasius explains uh, when he's, he's dealing with those who are doubting the resurrection. He says, who else has freed sinners from their previous sins? Those who were enslaved to lust, he has made champions over it. Those who were cowards, he now makes to be brave. Those who were previously de despondent, he now makes to be powerful witnesses of his presence. It's the very same thing that we would say today is a, a, a true witness of the risen Jesus is the fact that churches still today all throughout the United States and actually all throughout the world will gather on the first day of new creation to worship their king. On the first day of new creation, all Christians all around the world come together to say, we rest in Christ, his finished work on the cross, and not just what he did on the cross, also the fact that he resurrected from the grave and has now made that work applicable to his people. He has now not only saved us from our sins, but he has caused us to be alive with him by the grace of the Spirit. So all of this, all of this takes place on that first day. The first day becomes very, very important for how Christians understand their salvation. And so as I've closed a couple of times now in the Gospel of Luke as we've studied it, the, the only fitting response to all of this truth, all of this witness, is to respond in praise for our King. So uh, before we do that, let me close this in a word of prayer and let's go to the supper. Lord, you are not only God of all creation, Lord of all the cosmos, but Christ, you are our Savior and our friend. The one who died, was buried, was resurrected, and is now alive. We thank you for the grace of your Holy Spirit poured out onto your people to cause us to see you, to know you, to love you, to worship you, to serve you. Lord, would we have more of your spirit poured out into our lives, causing us to love you and turn from our sins and turn towards new life in Christ. Lord, we pray for those of us who have never believed or seen or known Christ in his glory, that this strange, weak, foolish message of salvation by a crucified Lord would reign over their hearts as well. Not only a crucified Lord, but a resurrected one, one who defies death itself and deals finally with our sin. Lord, we are so indebted to you for this. And we are so thankful that you have chosen to save sinners like us. We thank you and we praise your name. Amen.